Hello and welcome to this special interview with BBC journalist and broadcaster Ross Atkins. My name is Cam Hall, the head of news here at Raw 12.51am. After working as a journalist and DJ in South Africa during the 1990s, Ross Atkins joined the BBC in 2001, working originally as a news producer in Simon Mayo's programme on BBC Radio 5 Live. He'd go on to present Up All Night before joining the BBC World Service, where he's presented shows including The World Today, The World Have Your Say, and since 2014, Outside Source, which has also been broadcast on the BBC News Channel since 2015. Atkins has covered major stories, including Barack Obama's election victories and inauguration, the 2009 swine flu outbreak, and the death of Nelson Mandela, receiving multiple awards throughout his career. And most recently, Ross is increasingly known for his Ross Atkins on explainers, which have gone viral on social media, receiving millions of views covering stories including Partygate, the COVID-19 pandemic and vaccines, and the increased cost of living. Inflation is a global issue right now. We can see that in many Western economies. In the US, consumer price inflation is 7%. In Germany, it's 5.3%. And what is global in nature is personal in its consequences, especially in winter. Well, I'm pleased to say that Ross Atkins is joining me here today. Ross, thank you so much for taking time to speak to me today. Cam, it's a pleasure. Great to talk to you. It's fantastic to talk to you. And I guess to start off with, um, just very simply, what um, got you into journalism in the first place and how did you go about it? Well, I took quite a long and winding route, to be honest. But the reason I'm a journalist here in the BBC newsroom today simply links back to the fact that when I was a teenager, I was very, very interested in the news. I also always used to watch Neighbours at 5.30 on BBC One and then watch the six o'clock news after it before dinner was served by my mum or dad. And through my teens, I followed the news very closely. I was completely um, obsessed with history as well, which is the subject I went on to study at university. And of course, the news and history complement each other very, very well. So I was generally interested in the news. And as I got a bit older and, uh, you know, would stay up a bit later listening to the radio before going to bed after I'd done my homework and so on, I'd often listen to the news. And you mentioned Up All Night on Five Live, for example. I used to routinely stay up to listen to the beginning of Up All Night because I loved the way it brought stories from different parts of the world and it would take me to places that I didn't know. And so I've always been interested in the news. I've always been curious as to why are certain things how they are? Why do certain people say certain things? I want to understand the world I'm in better and journalism allows me to do that. So the interest I've had has always been there. I think if I think back to school when I was 12 or 13 and I went to one of those career sessions that schools organize, um, the person I was meeting said, you know, what would you like to be? And I said, I'd like to be a journalist. So I've been focused on being a journalist for, for decades, really. As to how I actually got there, well, I didn't really get my act together particularly well. I came out of university not having any plan whatsoever. I think I sent a couple of letters to broadcasters and newspapers, but I may as well have just thrown them in the bin, frankly, because they were written poorly and I didn't really understand the industry or how to get into it. I didn't really get going properly as a news journalist until I was 27. I had a number of jobs editing websites through my mid-20s. I used to edit timeout.com, for example, for Time Out magazine. And I'd started to be booked as a guest on Five Live in particular, sometimes on Radio 4 too. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm really enjoying doing this. Perhaps that might help me get into, get into the news. And then I was made redundant by Time Out uh, when I was about 26, 27. It's not a 
particularly comfortable experience as you can imagine. And while I was unemployed, Five Live advertised for junior producers, broadcast journalists, as we call them. And I applied and was lucky enough to get the job. And that got me into the BBC newsroom and helped me understand how it worked. But it took me a long while to do that because I just didn't have a handle on how newsrooms worked, how news organizations worked. And for anyone going into journalism now, I would really recommend not waiting to your 25, 26 to start having a good handle on that. Well, we'll come on a little more later on to sort of advice for young people getting into journalism. But obviously, you've been in the BBC newsroom now for two decades. And of course, outside source you've been doing for most of the last decade. Um, very much your show in particular as well, the Ross Atkins on Explainers, which, as I mentioned, have gone viral um, throughout the last year on social media. Um, you've mentioned a lot that outside source, you wanted to um, react to the changing um, broadcast news landscape. You wanted in particular to do a more technologically driven um, style of presenting news and something in particular that um, was more reactive to the increasing digital trends on social media. So in many ways, what exactly were you seeking to do with outside source, but in particular, these um, the Ross Atkins on explainers over the last year? What exactly were you seeking to do differently? What in many ways were you responding to in that? Okay, well, I'll take those questions in turn because really how we went about creating outside source was a slightly different calculation to the reasons we've created the Ros Atkins on explainers. When you look at outside source, this was a format we'd been pitching through 2012 and into 2013. It went on air in uh, early 2014. And the basic idea was this, if you're watching TV news, but you feel like there's a better array and mixture of source material on the news you're interested in by looking at your phone, that's a big problem for TV news. You shouldn't have that feeling of watching the TV, but knowing there's more up to date and a bigger range of information via your phone. And so one of the things I'd observed when presenting regular TV bulletins was that even if we were plugged into all the latest information flowing through a variety of digital sources, we couldn't easily get them onto the TV. It was very laborious, for example, to put a tweet onto TV or to take a line of copy from a news agency and get it visually onto the TV. You could do it, but you'd normally have to build a bespoke graphic to do that. And of course, that takes time. So the idea of outside source was that we would use technology the BBC could develop primarily through a touchscreen, which would allow producers to spot relevant information and then feed it to me as the presenter on the screen. And then it was my job to weave them together. And really that idea was born out of my experience of using live pages. You'll know when you get a breaking story, if you go to the front page of any of the big news websites, the BBC included, there's a live page. There's been a lot of them recently with all the twists and turns in Westminster. And that live page doesn't just include the latest BBC information, it includes any relevant information to that story. And I was looking at that and thinking, well, this is a really useful thing for me as I follow a story, but there's no broadcast equivalent. And so Outside Source was really, first and foremost, a response to that, that I was saying to the viewers, we are plugged into all the best sources, all of them. So stay with us and we'll pick out the best elements to show you. There was another important dimension to that, which is that traditionally, most news broadcasters only include their own source material within their reporting. But I noticed that in the digital experience, actually, you would you would pull on a number of different sources and different organizations to cover a story. And so Outside Source, again, wanted to step into that space and say, well, actually, if the most up-to-date piece of information comes from the FT on this, we'll show the FT's tweet. Or if it comes from the Times, we'll show the front page of the Times newspaper or whatever the example might be. So Outside Source is really built around the idea of collation, 
and building up a picture of a story by pulling together all the best source information, regardless of what form it came in and regardless of which source it came from, as long as we, of course, trusted it as a source. That was stage one, if you like. And we noticed that this was very popular with TV viewers. Our ratings have been excellent compared with when we launched on in the UK in 2015. But what I also observed come 2019, which was really when I started to think about the explainers was, okay, we've made a TV format that plugs into the digital world, but it's not generating content for the digital world that's performing. When we used to clip up our programs, largely they didn't do very good numbers. So I started to think about, well, why is that? And I drew a couple of conclusions. One was that if you're gonna make successful digital content out of a TV program, you probably need to purposely make one section of your program with digital in mind. So instead of making a TV program and then saying, oh, I wonder what we'll clip after it, we now go into our program knowing which section we're gonna clip. So that's one thing. The second thing was that it felt to me because of the, the changing nature of political discourse in Western Europe and in the US in particular, it was necessary for us to evolve how impartiality manifested itself. There was an appetite from our audience to perhaps speak in blunter, more direct language than perhaps we have in the past. And so I started to experiment with that. And then the third thing I was interested in doing was that within a classic TV format, three minutes for a report would be quite a long time. Four minutes would be luxurious. But of course, in the digital world, you can do as much or as little as you like. And I had a feeling that people had an appetite for more depth and detail on stories if it was packaged up and presented in a way that kept them viewing. And so these explainers were also an experiment on that. Could I do seven minutes on the latest on climate change or the latest on UK politics? Could I do that in a way that would keep people watching? And my hunch was that if we created the right format and included the right detail, perhaps we could. And so the explainers really grew out of all of those calculations, which built on the initial principle of collation and depth and explanation, which was the bedrock of outside source when we started it in 2014. Well, as you mentioned there, it really is the culmination of a lot of work, not just from yourself, but um, by, of course, your producers, researchers, everyone um, working on outside source and working on the stories. And obviously I can I can tell from myself using the explainers sometimes to write sort of write the stories that I cover on Raw, but also I know just seeing the response on social media as well. It is something that has you know really caught on and something that's been really valuable. Um, going back, I guess, back to that research process now, and in particular, um, you mentioned there's a large team that kind of work together um, and sort of collaborate um, on outside source and on the explainers. And of course, I always know when I, I've seen when you've done um, explainers before, you've put them up on social media, you've always um, taken care to credit the producers and credit researchers who've assisted you. So just talk a little bit more about that research process. And in particular, the, what is needed to really get that breadth and depth of coverage that you're really seeking with the explainers? Well, what you need, of course, is dictated in part by what you're making. So our explainers sometimes go to as long as 10 minutes. Those ones may involve one or two producers working for several days. Other videos we will turn around in an afternoon. So yesterday, for example, we produced an update on the false claim by the Prime Minister about Keir Starmer and Jimmy Savile, and then the debate around whether those comments were in any way linked to the protesters who were harassed Keir Starmer on Monday. That we turned around on the day. Um, and sometimes when we turn around the, the videos on the day, we do that with one producer working on it. But to answer your question as thoroughly as I can, I should probably say that there are 
some people who are working only on the video, only on the explainer, but it also relies on a lot of other people too. So let me take that in part. So if, for example, one lunchtime we decide to do a video and we're going to record it at half past six, seven o'clock that evening, at least one producer will be allocated full time onto that. Most of my afternoon will also go onto it. And sometimes if the subject is particularly complex, we'll allocate a second producer onto it as well. So we are all entirely focused on that. But by about four, four thirty, five o'clock, we'll have a pretty complete idea of what we think the script and the elements should be. To get to that point is a two-stage process, really. First of all, we collect all of the most relevant information that we think we need to include. We don't particularly worry about an order. And then the next thing we do is think, okay, well, how do we order these elements? And then once we've ordered them, then we think, well, okay, I think then how do I script around those to turn that into a good story? And then we'll review it, maybe take some things out, put some things in. And when we've got a settled setup by half past four or five o'clock, then the script will be looked at by the program editor on the day. It'll also be looked at by our overall editor of the two news channels, Jess Brammer. And on top of that, we will always send the script to at least one and sometimes two BBC journalists who are expert on that particular subject. So for example, our video yesterday about the Keir Starmer allegation, that was looked at by my dear colleague, Chris Mason. But if I do a story about NATO, well, I might speak to James Landell, our diplomatic correspondent. Or if I do a story about Putin, I might run it by Steve Rosenberg, a correspondent in Moscow. So we always make sure it's seen by the general editors and it's seen by specialists as well. Once we've done that and the script is nailed down, then it's time to record it. And then we rely on some other colleagues too. So I'm speaking to you from the set of Outside Source. I would sit in this exact chair. Here on set with me will be a floor manager who's in charge of making sure that everything on set runs as it should do. And they're absolutely brilliant and essential. Downstairs directly through the floor where I am now is what we call gallery A. And in that gallery will be an auto cue person, a sound person and the director. And so those people are also absolutely crucial to making sure the execution of the video is done brilliantly because more often than not, we do this live or we do this just before we go live. So we need to do this, if not in one take, then very close to one take. And that requires me and the director and the sound person being very much in sync. And it requires all of the other people I've mentioned to play their roles as well. So while two or three of us will be working solely on the video through the afternoon, actually it takes a much broader range of colleagues to help bring it into port. Well, indeed, it's a very thorough research process and it's something that obviously does show in the final package. Um, of course, one thing central to obviously um, what you do with the explainers, but also to the BBC in general as well is, of course, impartiality. And indeed, I remember um, reading The Times a month ago and um, Rosamund Irwin referring to your explainers um, as an example of assertive impartiality, evidence-led, directly given, driven by facts and presenting um, perspectives across the entire BBC. So um, perhaps very quickly, in terms of impartial journalism, um, I guess, firstly, what does that mean to you? And how do you really seek to embody that through your explainers? So impartial journalism means that your priority is to fairly represent what's happened and to fairly represent all of the participants within any given story so that the consumer of your journalism has as balanced and fair a representation of what's happened as possible and has all the relevant context and information to be able to draw their own conclusions about 
the event. Now, I have to do that because I'm at the BBC, but if I worked somewhere else, I'd be doing it anyway because I believe in it as an important form of journalism. It's not the only form of journalism. Activism journalism is also uh, increasingly relevant to the media ecosystem we're in. We also see opinion-led journalism as well. Investigative journalism has obviously been around for many decades and so on. There are lots of different types of journalism and disciplines and they all play their role. But for me, I feel drawn to impartial journalism because it's the kind of uh, approach that I've always felt fits with, 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 with how I want to learn about the world. If I'm looking at a story, in some ways, I'm more interested in the people in the story who I don't agree with than the ones I am. I do agree with because I want to understand why do they think what they think? Why do they do what they do? And so when we're making these videos, I'm thinking about the people who are watching them and I'm thinking, well, the best thing I could do for them would be to help them understand why this event has happened, why it matters why each of the different protagonists have chosen to do what they've done, how they've offered their defense for what they've done. And if I can do that, then really my work is done because that is my goal. My goal is not a particular outcome. I don't make videos and think, oh, if I post this, then this outcome will occur. That's not in my mind in the slightest. And so for me, to use the phrase assertive impartiality, ties back to what I was saying about the evolution of how particularly political discourse has gone in the last 10 years and how sometimes it is necessary for us to detail what a particular politician has said and to say, well, in this case, that doesn't necessarily stack up with the information that we have about the subject about which they're talking. And we need to be direct about that if we can be direct about that. Sometimes politicians will say something and you can't be sure whether what they've said is entirely accurate or not, but sometimes you can. And it was clear our audience had an appetite for us to do that. Now, when you do do that, you've got to provide your evidence. And what's been uh, rewarding for me with these explainers is we cover a huge, huge range of different subjects from the crisis in Ukraine to net zero to uh, the stories in Westminster at the moment to uh, the EU's approach to its vaccine rollout. The list goes on and on and on. And what's been rewarding is that people from across the political spectrum have shared the videos and been complimentary about them because I hope they can see that I'm working hard to fairly represent what's happening and to make sure that you don't finish one of these videos without a clear understanding of all of the different protagonists within the story that I'm covering. So impartiality for me cuts right to it. It cuts to the role of the journalist in helping the consumer of journalism understand our world. And if you don't fairly represent one section of a story, you're going to undermine how well you how well you help that understanding. And so I quite often get asked by people, is it hard when you're covering certain stories to not express your opinions on them? And I always say it's not it's not hard at all because my opinions are completely irrelevant. I don't come to work on a mission to share my opinions. My opinions are not relevant. They're not particularly interesting. What is interesting, I hope, is work I can do with all of my colleagues to produce something which is of genuine value and genuine interest to people, whoever they are, wherever they are, whoever they are, and whatever their politics. Indeed, and you mentioned there, um, obviously, that your, um, your explainers have been shared by people across the political spectrum, but um, the BBC has received criticism from across the political spectrum, it must be said, in recent years. Um, for impartiality. Do you think that the criticism that has been levelled at it at times has been fair? 
I mean, I'm not a spokesperson for the BBC or BBC News, so you you would need to direct more general questions about uh, the BBC and impartiality to people other than me. All I would say is that if you are the BBC or if you are a public service broadcaster in any country and you're covering a broad range of subjects and a broad range of uh, people, you are inevitably going to receive criticism. That's not to say that if I individually, and this is not to do with BBC News more generally, if individually I receive criticism for a piece of work I've done, by all means I'll engage with that and consider the critique because sometimes a critique may be fair, but more generally I would just say criticism coming the way of a public service broadcaster comes with the territory. Well, let's move on now to something else. Got moving perhaps from on air to off air now, and the fifty fifty project. Um, this is something that you are responsible for co-founding, and in particular, improving equality and diversity um, within broadcast journalism across the UK. So, I guess firstly, um, for anyone who doesn't know what the fifty fifty project is, what is it? What inspired you to co-found it, and also, what were you looking to achieve from it? So 5050 is an effort to diversify the sourcing within the BBC's journalism and within media content more broadly across a large number of organisations now. The goal is a simple but important one, which is to create media content and create journalism that reflects the world we live in. I started it because I felt that the BBC and not just the BBC, all news organisations were not managing to represent the world around us. We had accepted that that was a worthy goal, as had lots of other news organisations, but by our own admission, we were making progress towards it, but we hadn't got as far as we wanted to. And so my the 50-50 project was an effort to assist us to achieve a goal that we had already accepted was desirable. In terms of why I started it, well, I felt very passionately about it. And it comes back to something that we've already been talking about, which is if your mission is to fairly represent an event, a news event, and to fairly understand and represent the participants within that story and to fairly represent the relevant context that you need to understand what's happening. If you don't speak to a range of sources that reflect the world that you're reporting on, you are inevitably going to in some way constrain your ability to do that. So it's not just the right thing to do, though it is the right thing to do. I would argue it's the right thing to do for your journalism. If you want to understand and represent and report on the world as best you can well you need to speak to people from all parts of the world and so for me diversity cuts to the center of my journalistic mission i was excited to see if we could take it on in a different way i did a trip to silicon valley in 2016 where i saw lots of different organizations using data in very clever ways to affect behavioral change and affect cultural change and i came back and thought well perhaps i could use that with reference to the number of women we use as sources in journalism, in the BBC's journalism. And I thought, well, I can't just go to the top and announce I've had this idea. That wouldn't be appropriate. Um, I need to prove that this idea works. And so we set up a, a pilot scheme, a test scheme on outside source. We started at below 40% women. We ended up within three months at, I think it was 51% women. And I thought, my goodness, okay, this is exciting. And the idea was, again, a simple one, which was to measure each day the sources we were using to share that information each day and to take a gamble on the fact that by sharing each day it would influence the level of motivation and engagement we felt with the with the general goal and it worked 
And then once it worked on outside source, other people heard about it and other programs started to join in. And it just got bigger and bigger and it snowballed quite quickly. So within a couple of years, we had well over 100 BBC teams involved. Now I think we have over a thousand data sets within 5050 for the BBC, well outside news, I hasten to add, it's gone all over the BBC, so sport or entertainment or comedy or drama or natural history or science or children's, the list goes on. And then it also jumped outside of the BBC. So we now work with, again, a huge range of organisations from broadcasters to law firms to big corporates, all of whom use the same 50-50 approach but apply it to the type of content that they're making. But at its heart, it's a simple idea, which is to accept that it is a good thing for the content we create to look like the world that we live in and to represent the world that we live in. And that measuring how you're doing every day systematically is very likely to help you achieve that. Indeed, it's a very exciting project indeed. And of course, something that I know I and many um, other journalists, not just obviously here at Rawbit, Indeed, probably around broadcast journalism we'll be looking into as well. It is a very exciting project. Um, if we can move on now to um, just, I guess, getting into journalism and um, more specifically, of course, for many young people, uh, many people here at Raw, myself included, and indeed across work and across um, student radio stations looking to break into journalism, of course, a very competitive industry. Um, for someone, obviously, who has made it um, at the top of broadcast journalism, what would advice would you give um, to any young person thinking of making it and making a career and starting out in broadcast journalism? Well, what would I what would I advise? Well, I guess I'd advise a few things. One is to let your passion for the news flow. Work out what you really get excited about. What types of journalism really work for you when you consume them, whether it's an article or a video or a, uh, a book or a website or whatever the, the example might be. What are the types of journalism that get you excited? And if you can notice that, then try and work out what is it that that type of journalism is doing that is getting you excited? What are the actual mechanics of how they're doing it, which make you feel engaged, which make you feel informed? It's really important to start noticing when journalism is done well, and then you can work that in to the kind of journalism you do. I could give you a long, long list of inspiring moments through the years where I've thought, I love how that person's done that. I'm going to try and do that too. So one is to be conscious about how you consume the news and try and learn lessons from it. The second thing is to try and keep yourself as creative as possible. And I don't just mean creative in the context of journalism. I mean, generally, when you're making journalism it's a creative process whether it's a video or a radio program or an article for a website and the more ways you explore your creativity the more creativity you'll bring to your storytelling because in the end journalism isn't just assembling facts it's about telling stories and the better you are at telling stories tends to be connected to the more creative you are generally so i would say let your creativity flow in whatever form it comes the second thing is talk to people. You've got a huge advantage over where I was when I was getting going is that it's quite easy to reach journalists. So if you see a journalist doing something that you admire or you see a journalist uh, in a subject area you'd like to know more about, get in touch with them. They'll all be on Twitter. They'll all be on Facebook. You can, you can probably work out their email. Reach out to them. Not everyone will reply, but I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by how many people do. Certainly whenever I get an email asking for advice, I always reply. So ask for help. You don't have to work it out yourself is what I'm saying. This is something that I sometimes you know, get asked for advice from people. And I say, well, who else have you spoken to? And they say, no one yet. And I feel like saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered you started with me, but you don't have to work everything out 
yourself about this industry and about this discipline. There are people all around who have worked some of this stuff out already. Take a shortcut and talk to them. So obviously by studying already, students are doing that. But I would say more broadly, look at the people you admire and, and reach out to them and say, can I just ask you a couple of questions? And you might get a, a pleasant surprise and they will, they will say yes. The next bit of advice I would say is make stuff. Do journalism. Don't just talk about doing journalism. In the end, it doesn't really matter when you're getting going, whether your article is read by one person or a million people. What matters is that you've made an article or you've made a video or a TV report or whatever the example is. And that process of making something has helped you. It'll help you get better. So the next time you'll have reviewed it and gone, well, okay, that worked. This bit didn't. Next time I'll go again. And so the more opportunities you can find to just do journalism, take them. And I'll give you a small example, just from a few years ago, I was, and this is when I was up and running at the BBC, you know, it's quite recently, five, six years ago, my younger daughter's, no, my elder daughter's uh, primary school was wanting to do a radio project. And we did some radio journalism with, with her and her friends and her, you know, the girls and boys in her year for a while. I absolutely loved it. It kind of sharpened up a few disciplines I'd got rusty on in terms of uh, researching stories and telling them in very short spaces of time. And that was a, a radio program that just the parents in the school would listen to. It didn't really matter. The point was that it was I was doing a different type of journalism and it was helping me get better. So whatever form of journalism you want to get into, just make as much of it as you can. But when you've made it, review it. So I'm obsessed with reviewing. I watch back all of my videos. I take notes. That bit worked. That bit didn't work. If you don't review what you're doing, you're much less likely to correct errors or correct stylistic points that you want to improve on. But just as, in, just as importantly, if you do something really well, if you don't review it, you might not spot it. So sometimes I watch back and I go, ah, we did that in that video. That really worked. We'll do that again. But unless you go through a review process, um, you might not otherwise um you might not otherwise spot it and then you'll then you'll then you'll miss out and the final thing and and this might seem obvious but i'll say it anyway is be tenacious very very few of the people i see being successful in journalism had anyone come around with a plate and just go here you go here's a great job here are loads of opportunities off you go all of us have been knocked back countless times outside source i pitched as an idea multiple times before the BBC said yes. The videos I talked to people about multiple times before uh, the BBC came behind them. And by the way, that's not a criticism of the BBC because it's correct that not every idea that's thrown the way of editors, editors should automatically go, yeah, okay, great, I'll do that. You should have to fight for your ideas to make the case for your ideas. And so if you get knocked back, think about why have I not been knocked back? Maybe you could have done something better Maybe the idea is a good one, but you just need to keep going at it. And so my point is to think, don't get, don't get disappointed if editors knock you back. It's part of the process of, 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 of journalism, both on a day-to-day -day basis when you're pitching stories, sometimes editors want them, sometimes they don't, but also when you're going for jobs, journalism's competitive. You'll, every time you go for a job, there will be multiple people who could do that job well. Maybe you'll get it, maybe you won't. But if you don't, it doesn't mean that you're not cut out for this because you just need to keep coming and coming. And as I get older and grayer, I see the best journalists rising to the top. So don't be despondent if the first few times you ask, 
people say no. I didn't get a gig. I wanted to work at the BBC from the moment I left college and I was 21. I got a gig at the BBC when I was 27. I had to keep knocking on the door and I also had to learn how to knock on the door because frankly, I wasn't doing it very well at first. So that comes back to my ask advice. If you keep getting knocked back, go and speak to people who've been through that process. How can you improve? And just keep coming because if you are passionate about reporting and passionate about explaining the world and you hone your skill at doing that, trust me, in the end, you'll get in and in the end, you'll flourish. Well, I think some very encouraging words for anyone looking to get into journalism. Ross, it's been fantastic to have you speak to us today. Thank you so much for giving up your time. It's a pleasure. Best of luck with your studies. Nice to speak to you. Thank you very much, Ross. And thank you indeed for um, watching and listening to us as well. Again, if you'd like to see more of these interviews and our other online content, check out our Mixcloud, our Spotify, YouTube pages, and find us as well across social media using the links at the bottom of the screen to make sure you keep up to date with all of our latest content. I've been Cam Hall. Thanks for listening. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station.